Forge family. Last time together, we were in chapter 2 of the prophet Jonah. Uh, actually, at the end of chapter 1, uh, by one verse, and then we launched into chapter 2. And it, it uh, reflected on the fact that Jonah had been picked up and cast into the, the crazed waves and winds and disappeared beneath the surface. And he... Um, he uh, he didn't know what happened above him, but the storm stopped instantly. The wind stopped, and the, the, the sea went flat and oily, and he just kept sinking deeper and deeper and deeper, wrapped about with weed, and I, I believe he drowned. Um, and he, it was then that uh, he was swallowed by a great fish that the Lord God had prepositioned uh, for just that purpose of, of swallowing the body and preserving it for three days and three nights. <clears throat> this account of that was, uh, was then quoted back by Jesus, and he called it the sign of Jonah when he spoke to, the, to those that were uh, really grinding on him and, and challenging him <clears throat> so that uh, he himself would indeed uh, be three days and three nights in the tomb as the sign of Jonah. Now, you know, the first part of, uh, the last part of chapter uh, one, the, the, the Lord instructed the fish to spit the living, breathing body of Jonah out onto dry land. And then uh, Jonah wrote the eight-verse psalm of Jonah, drawing from 20-some psalms in the scriptures, but he remained convinced that it was God's fault that he had drowned. When Jonah prayed, he addressed his prayers to the holy temple in Jerusalem and not to the great Lord God in heaven. He remained deeply angry at the Assyrians and the great city of Nineveh. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your promise of resurrection and the biblical accounts of Jonah, Lazarus, and yourself. Lord, you lead the way. When Jonah prayed, he addressed his prayers to the Holy Temple, Lord, and not to you. We would learn, Lord, how to more faithfully address you and none other. Lord, uh, we would learn all we can from these four chapters by Holy Spirit. Put your heart of compassion within us for the lost around us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge, uh, today we're going to be in chapter 3 of the prophet Jonah. And the verse 3 verses say this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation that I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So he, he had just been resurrected. Uh, out of the belly of this fish, out of the belly of Sheol, uh, and life was put back in his body by the Lord God. But he was stripped of all his resources. The only thing he could rely on was the Lord at that point. And so he decided he would obey. And he really didn't want another death experience. There's a, another commentator named... Um, Leslie Allen, and he said, uh, Jonah is really fortunate to be reprieved. 
had not the disobedient prophet of 1 Kings 13 been torn by a lion. You know, somehow Jonah survived. You know, the Lord could have just let him be digested. <laughs> or, or just drowned and gobbled up by other creatures. So he turns and he heads the 550 miles cross-country northeast to the great city of Nineveh. And in the text, it's literally, it says it's a great city to God. It's filled with 120,000 souls. Assyri- they were Assyrians, and they were immersed in a violent pagan culture. Now, they were hated by Jonah because he was, he was aware from history what the Assyrians had done to the Israel- Israelite army in 900 AD, excuse me, 900 BC, excuse me. Now, the sin of that city had come up before the Lord, and he sent Jonah to cry out against it and its people. Now, the first commission resulted in Jonah's flight and the storm. The second commission, you know, resulted in Jonah's obedience. The text describes Nineveh as a great city. The walls of that citadel were 100 feet high, and the, the width across the top of the wall were three chariot widths wide. Uh, the walls around Nineveh were 60 miles in circumference, and that included some other population centers and towns. Apparently, Nineveh had its own hanging gardens as it was perched on the side of the Tigris River. I'm going to pass around some artists' reconstructions. This has nothing to do with reality. It's just their best shot at what it looked like in the day of Jonah. Okay? Um, the last one in the series coming around is one of the uh, is a picture of the huge stone bow relief carvings of of an events or uh, or battles won or whatever it is, and on, quite a number of those have been excavated and set into museums. On arrival in Nineveh, three days uh, uh, was laid out in front of him because verse three says, "Now Nineveh was all, it was an exceeding great city, three days walk." So scholars have argued back and forth over this. There's two possible interpretations. One is it would take him three days to walk around the city, 60 miles. Um, but the second possibility, I think, has more credence um, because it was, it's focused on Jonah's assignment and that it would take three days to preach to all the neighborhoods and, and population centers inside that great city. When Jonah was commissioned the second time. He was told by the Lord that he would deliver a message that the Lord gave him. Verse 4 solves that mystery. And this is what Jonah said. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, in the natural, Nineveh looks impregnable. But the Lord God, through Jonah, gives a dire warning to all those living in the city. 40, the number 40 in the scriptures, is the number of testing from Sinai and Moses to the Judean wilderness and Jesus. The Lord uses 40 as a testing number of days. Now here, only one day's walk into the city. Jonah delivers that warning, and he gets an amazing response. The word overthrown in Hebrew has a whole bunch of different meanings. Uh, first in, in order is that uh, um, it, that you could be turned upside down into total destruction or it could be the turning of a curse into a blessing to be transformed temporarily to, to 
changing the sea into dry land, to changing one's heart, or to produce spiritual transformation in someone. What Jonah believed, and the people of Nineveh believed, was the potential of utter destruction. There are scholars who have written regarding the appearance of Jonah after his three days and nights in the belly of the fish. They speculate that his skin was permanently stained by the fish's digestive juices, and that would make Jonah a sign and a wonder to look at. And it may have enhanced his delivery of his message. Okay, so when you arrive in heaven soon, just go look him up and find out for yourself. You'll be able to see him right away. It's going to look really yellow and crisp. Verse 5 gives us the response of the people throughout Nineveh. Um, They hadn't all seen Jonah, but they had heard. The message had moved like lightning through the population. And then it says in the text, the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. So Jonah had walked for a day's worth. I mean, he obviously had had more than one preaching assignment that day, but he was one day into the city and it caught fire. And it, it, it surged through the rest of the population. And uh, they realized that this unknown God, Elohim, the word here is God, meaning Almighty God. It's not Yahweh. Yahweh is Israel's covenant God. Uh, this wasn't this wasn't a God that was going to deal directly at this time with Assyria. So the people of Nineveh, great and small, began to show outward signs of repentance. They put on sackcloth and they set themselves aside to fast. Now sackcloth was made from jute or sisal. Cecil. Uh, it's a veg. You know, they make make that cloth out of vegetable fibers and it's rough um, and uh, you could ex- the pieces that they probably had in mind were um, prepared to be sewn up on three sides so probably you know two and a half three feet long on a side and maybe two feet wide at the bottom and um, gunny and and um, burlap are also made of similar things out of the jute and out of the these vegetable fibers now, if you're sitting in the sun and sweating and you have this really itchy, rough fabric working on your bare skin, it's uncomfortable. But it will help you focus your mind on fasting and sorrow and repentance. Because the Assyrians worshipped the pantheon of the ancient Mesopotamian gods. Um, and and they, um, they have many temples and carvings of their gods' influence on the culture. They were also open to other gods. <clears throat> So when it was announced to them that some other god, this Elohim, was enraged with them, their immediate response was to discover how to placate, how to appease this other angry god. The phrase believed in God in the text is really external. Uh, they believed that Elohim was angry with them. Their belief was not internal, faith-based and not leading them to conversion and transformation. Verse 6 to 9 in the text says this, When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth sackcloth and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let every man, beast, herd, or flock not taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink. 
but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. Uh, If you recall from our study of chapter 1, Assyria was in a season of depleted powers. They were, uh, especially Nineveh, was constantly being pushed on and and, um, uh, by these mountain tribes that surrounded them. They were sort of under constant attack, guerrilla warfare kind of thing. Maybe not the city itself, but certainly the, the caravans that brought the supplies into the city. Now, um, there's um, a good history that says when these empires were under great stress, they would quickly go find someone who could do divination or other forms of witchcraft to try and determine what's going wrong, how do we fix this? Well, for years and years and years, scholars note that this really didn't change for the Assyrians, especially at Nineveh. So it's very likely that the Lord just kind of put his thumb down on top of all the witchcraft that was happening. So nothing changed. It was bad. It was obviously a season where Assyria was not a threat to Israel due to their internal struggles. Now it's also known from history and archaeology that Nineveh was not the capital city of Assyria at that time. It was a great city, but it wasn't the capital. There was no royal palace set in Nineveh at that time. Now, the reference to the king here uh, is based upon uh, the Akkadian language reference that uses the consonants MLK. That's not Martin Luther King. That's, um, it's just that the, those languages didn't have vowels, just like Hebrew. And so for them, MLK spoke of the regional governor or the magistrate over the province in which Nineveh was set. However, in Hebrew, those consonants MLK were the source of the word Malik, which was king. So in the Hebrew text, it says the king got the message that there was a 40-day warning, and he recognized that there was an unknown god who was enraged, enraged at Nineveh and at its people. Then this is like this is like piling on to his problems already, as in, can it get worse? Ugh. So he needed to lead in the appeasement of this angry God. He removes his beautiful exterior robes, outer garments, and puts on sackcloth and sits in the dust at the same level as the people that he governed. To that end, the pronouncement over the city and all its people and livestock was the order for all living things to be dressed in sackcloth, man and beast, and to fast from food and drink. Now the city would have been filled with a cacophony of crying babies and children, lowing cattle, squawking poultry, loud bleating flocks and herds, not to mention groaning adults. As they moaned in their fast, they were to cry out to Elohim, this unknown God. And as they turned, as they repented for their wicked and violent ways, Now, it's insightful that the king knew exactly what Elohim was upset about. They were a violent culture. They were a wicked culture. 
and he names it. Now he sets out to lead his people in appeasement. Verse 9 begins with a question that appears in Joel chapter 2. We studied that, that book together. If you recall, it was regarding the locust swarms that descended repeatedly on Judah, stripped the land bare. And in the second chapter of Joel chapter 2, he uses the same line. Who knows? God may turn and relent. Now, in the case of Joel, it was relent and leave a blessing behind him. Okay. In the case of Nineveh, you know, the, the king is just going, oh, I hope so. That prophet was dealing uh, with the, the torn down infrastructure and problems in Judah. Here, the king is dealing with the threatening God. Now, the king saw the passion of the people to repent, and he hoped it was going to be enough to placate Elohim. Verse 10 gives us the results of that fast and external repentance. It says this, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The city had come up before God with a cry about violence and, and wickedness, and, but it had changed, and that was no longer the case. No longer was there a personal, corporate, or cultural expression of wickedness or violence. Now, we know that this repentance didn't last very long. Within a generation, 25 years or so, at the rise of Sargon II, Assyria would again rise to a pinnacle of brutality, savage violence, and wickedness. They overran Israel in 726 B.C., maybe close to 60 years after Jonah started in on this prophecy. And when that happened, the Israelites, the ten northern rebel tribes, were swept up in nearly entirely. They, the whole population was ensnared and scattered among the nations. Nobody knows where they went. There's speculation about, oh, this group in Russia, and oh, this group in China, and oh, this group in Britain, and oh, this, etc. Nobody knows. <clears throat> the following prophet named Nahum, Nahum, he, he showed up 100 years after, after um, Jonah. He's the one who cries out for the utter destruction of Assyria. And he has a city named after him, Capernaum. Kefer Nahum, hometown for this pro, for the prophet, and in 605 BC the Babylonians destroyed the Egyptians and the Assyrians at the Battle of Carchemish. Now it's possible to say, wait, 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 Pastor, Numbers 23 and 1 Samuel 15 both say that the Lord does not change His mind. So in those texts in Scripture. Uh, those scriptures deal with covenants that were made between the Lord God Yahweh and his people and they were lodged and anchored in eternity likewise the Mesopotamian gods Mesopotamian gods were believed to make pronouncements that could not be altered ever for Elohim the God whom Jonah represented to change his mind was astounding it's also insightful that Jonah hung around Nineveh to see what was going to happen. 
because he was afraid that God was going to change his mind. So Ford's family, there was an amazing, merciful reversal by God for that season to not destroy Nineveh at that time. What Jonah still did not get, did not know, was the global oversight and mastery over affairs of empires and nations and all the natural world by Yahweh. For the time being, Israel would remain safe, unthreatened by the Assyrians for another generation. Throughout scripture, there were dark days, there were vile threats, um, there were awful things laid out, horrible expectations, and into those, the Lord either extended his power and his grace and his mercy, or he withheld them. <clears throat> and I believe that our nation's response to the 9-11 attacks, which we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks, okay, um, the prayer, the gathering in churches, the mourning of the loss of thousands, uh, a lot of that falls in the category of the repentance of Nineveh. Didn't last. External, shocked, fearful, angry, but not faith-filled. So two decades have passed. Another generation has risen, one without faith, one without love for God. We, too, need to position ourselves with humility, repentance, and turning away from our wickedness as a nation, as a church, and as individuals. Then we can cry for mercy and change. See, we know that when we turn and uh, repent and call on the Lord's name, he hears us, and he relents. So when we cry for mercy and change, transformation, and return to freedoms that our forefathers set in place and died for, if God relented on Nineveh, he will relent from his anger in America. Let's pray. God Almighty, most merciful one, we bow before you. Search us and our ways so that we can identify how we have sinned, how the church has drifted away, how our nation is filled with unbelief, and how we got there. Rescue us, Lord. Intervene, Lord. We would once again be a church marked by your love, your presence, and your ways. Then, as we ought, we will be empowered to equip those to lead in this nation again. In Jesus' name. Amen.